invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus 18. Open your copy of God's Word. What a blessing it is for us to have these uh, scriptures of, of in our own possession, be able to read. I trust you're reading it through the week and not only, not only when we gather on Sunday, the Lord's Day. There are some note sheets uh, at, the, at the entryways. By now, it's probably too late to get them, but maybe you saw it when you came in. There's a lot of material here today, and I thought I would help us uh, and maybe a shortcut in case I don't make it all the way through. Um, apologize, I forgot to wear red today. Not, that's unusual, I know. At least I still do have a liturgical color, purple. I was so excited that, that I had this shirt out of the summer bin, um, now that summer's here, I think, and it was pressed and I really wanted to wear it, and I forgot I should have wore red. I don't have a red shirt, however, so I'd have to wear the tie, and that would just at least have a red ribbon, all right? Okay. Uh, reunions are kind of coming up as well, aren't they? Family reunions. Um, in ministry, often, often family reunions and trips and quote-unquote vacations all got wrapped together. Uh, it, particularly the early years, and now everyone's so far apart that it, it indeed is a real vacation. I mean, real have to go far in order to re- reunite with someone. I had the chance to see my brother uh, a couple weeks ago. We met in Cleveland. I had the shorter journey. Um, he's, he's from the California, Southern California area. We went to the Basics Conference, Alistair Begg's Pastors Conference. It's my annual pilgrimage, and uh, my brother joined me there. Um, I, I think it was probably the longest amount of time that he and I had just the two of us together since we were in college. We were roommates in college most, most of the years, uh, and we're, we're both still alive, uh, even after the last, uh, last week of meeting. Reunions are important, and uh, reunion, family reunion, brackets the exodus. Just before the exodus, the actual getting out of Egypt began. Moses was, was taken away from his family, um, and now he's being reunited with his family. Now, we don't know the, all the specific details because... Zipporah and Gershom did leave with him from Midian initially to get back to Egypt. But we, somewhere along the way, after the little incident with the big incident with the angel of the Lord and Zipporah circumcising their son because Moses was neglectful in doing so, and thus saving Moses' life, you know that drama, we don't hear about the family. Maybe Zipporah said, this is enough, I'm going back to my dad. Uh, or maybe, maybe once they got to Egypt and they realized how tense the situation is uh, and how much of a wanted man Moses still would be, maybe he sent Zipporah and, and the, the kids back uh, to safety, to their father-in-law. We, we really don't know. Somehow she ended up back at her parents' place And now Jethro, her father, and Moses' father-in-law is returning with them. Chapter 17, verse 8, all the way through into 18, is is one 
wonderful unit of narrative, and there's four movements within it. And we don't want to get overly pragmatic because this really is about Christ. This is really about the gospel and getting to Christ in all of this. But there, there is a reality in which we observe and we watch the people of God, and particularly Moses and Jethro, and how is it that they, that they are working among the people of God and seeing the people of God formed into a community, formed into a nation. And through this, we've seen Moses as a leader in war, Moses as a leader now in witness. As we go forward, we see him in worship and, and in the work. We're just going to look at the second movement here, chapter 18, verses 1 to 9, maybe into 12 a little bit. Well, this visit from Jethro contrasts with the previous interaction. We have two non-Hebrew, non-Jewish people groups. We've got the Amalekites, Amalek, and we've got the Midianites with Jethro. They've both heard about what God did to bring Israel out of Egypt and make them a nation. But they both respond significantly differently. Amalek responds with the fight, which leads to a conflict, warfare, with the people of God. And, and Jethro responds with faith, leading to the positive side of a witness. But this is a good, a good warning and reminder for us that when we witness, when we testify of this mighty power of God, you'll get different reactions, some positive and some negative. Well, here is a witness. How is it that Jethro understands who this God is. Now, it could be that his background, indeed, he's, he's called a priest already, and perhaps he's the kind of priest like the Melchizedekian kind of priest. Not exactly in the same order necessarily, right? and they're in different parts of, of the world and different lines of people. But God, God is working and doing his revelation in, among the nations. But somewhere along the way, Jethro comes to this profession of faith that we see and hear in verses 10 into 12. Blessed be Yahweh, very specific, very personal, the, the covenant name of God, the, the name that God has revealed to his people. His covenant people, not just anybody and everybody. We brought it into English through this word Jehovah, of which we've sung. But it is Yahweh, the I Am, the eternally self-existent one, self-sufficient one. The one, do you remember reading and singing that line this morning? We, we have borrowed life from him. We don't have life in and of ourselves. The breath of life is a divine gift which he has lent to us for a time. He alone is ever living. He alone is life. 
and we're to be stewards of it. Of this God, Jethro testifies. Well, let's, let's see how indeed witness happens. How does uh, testimony happen? Uh, verses 3 to 4 are, are insightful. Once we get past figuring out how in the world did Zipporah leave and come back, we, we can only surmise. But verses 3 and 4 read, Along with Zipporah, along with her two sons, the name of the one is Gershom. For Moses said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land, or a stranger, an alien in a foreign land. And verse 4 goes on to say, in the name of the other, Eliezer. We've not met Eliezer before. We haven't heard of him. Where'd he come from? How'd that happen? Well, we know how that happened, but we don't know when. Is this the first time, perhaps, that Moses saw this second son, and now he's naming him? I, I don't know. But he's named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my fathers was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Gershom is a, a Hebrew name that sounds like a foreigner there. Now, whether he means I'm a foreigner in Midian, and he's, he's a bit contemplative, thinking about what he had had in Egypt. Or now he has a home in Midian, has been accepted into an adoptive family and married into that family. Now he looks back and says, I was a foreigner there in Egypt, and now I have a real place. I have a real home. But you can see that in, in the name is an expression of Moses' values and of his experience with God. It's similar with Eliezer, which means God is my helper. Maybe, maybe we could take this one apart a little bit and you can see a little bit how it works. El, E-L, El, God. And then the little letter I is the Hebrew way of saying my, possessive. El, Eli. Sometimes you will see that name, Eli, my God. Or God is my God, Eli. But here's this other word, Etzer, Etzer, my help. God, my help, Eliezer. Well, this, this is fun. Moses explains that his father's God, his biological family, his spiritual family, passed on the heritage to him when he was a child, up until he had been weaned and then sent to the palace in Egypt. My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Do you see how Moses recounts his testimony, his story in the naming of his kids? What, what thought process do you go through, have you gone through in naming your kids? There's a purpose to it. We kind of got stuck in a pattern. We had Anna. We had Alyssa. Oh, they both end in ah. We got Micah. Oh, we switched from an A to an M. We've got Monica. Oh, we still got the M, but all ending in ah. And then Luca. The fifth one comes along. What in the world are we going to do? Do we go with an A? Do we go with an M? Now nah, let's start a new group. L. Luca. We seem to stop there. We seem to be missing a Lilia or something. I don't know. 
Maybe that'll be a grandchild along the way in the years. I don't know. I don't know. You, do, you, you have, however you got the names of your kids, but is there a thought to it, a reason to it? Anna is grace. Alyssa is a variation of truth. Micah, uh, who is like God. Monica, uh, uh, wise discerner. And Luca, bearer of light. There's a purpose, there's a meaning to the names, and you can, as a preacher, pastor, you can kind of guess behind the, the names what, what values we hold as mom and dad, as parents. Your children are a means of testimony, a means of witnessing to the world around you, your friends, your, your neighbors, the world in which they go off to, you shoot them out like an arrow. They are, by name, an expression of what you believe and what you hold dear. Now, whether you put that much thought into the naming or not, it just sounded nice, that's, a, that's fine. But understand that our children are a testimony. They are a witness. This is how Isaiah understood this uh, when he had his children. I understand he's the prophet, but Isaiah 8, 18. Isaiah 8, 18. He says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents like that's significant signs, symbols, in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. The way Isaiah conducted his home, the way he lived life with his family was a testimony, a witness to the whole nation. And so are yours. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our nieces and our nephews are a way for us to talk about the grace of God, the goodness of God in life and in godliness. But our, our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our nieces and our nephews also need this good news of Jesus Christ. They, they need to hear from us the testimony. We talked about this a bit last Lord's Day of journaling and of passing on the story, the family story, not just the immigration stories, which are fascinating, but the spiritual pilgrimages, our testimonies passed on to the next generation. The faith passed to them and through them. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6, in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate your children. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we hear the word discipline and we hear the word instruction and we think it's very formal, and it can be, but this is about nurturing. This is about shaping and forming a worldview and a value system and a, a love and a devotion for God in Jesus Christ. It's an instruction, it's a catechesis of, of love, of mercy, and of grace. So our, our children are a testimony unto the Lord. 
our families. Then it goes a little bit further. Um, relationships, respectful relationships testify unto the Lord. Verse, verse 2, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. And then verses 5 to 7, Jethro again. Moses' father-in-law came with his sons, that is Moses' sons, and Moses' wife, and brought them to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet Jethro, his father-in-law, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. I had breakfast with Pastor Bill this last week, and he, he, he noted the, the bit of the comic repetition of Jethro's relationship with Moses. Do you notice how many times it's repeated? Father-in-law, 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 father-in-law. You know, like, it is a bit comical, just in case we would forget who Jethro is. But may, may, I don't know exactly, but perhaps there's a, a reason there for ourselves. You know, we need to be thoughtful and mindful, yes, even of our in-laws. You note the respect that is here in the family. Moses cares enough to send his wife to a safer place. Jethro cares enough to actually receive his daughter and sons back, in, back into the home. Oh, here they come moving back in again. And then Jethro doesn't just send Zipporah and the sons. He, he personally brings them. He escorts them back to Moses. And Moses, he actually goes out to meet Jethro. He didn't wait for Jethro to come all the way to him. And when he meets Jethro, notice this demonstration of bowing and kissing the feet of his father-in-law. I'm not suggesting we should do that, but we could at least hug. I know we're not all huggers. But look at the respect, the affection that is there. Our, our respectful relationships can, can help in winning over our extended family to know the Lord. Now, parents have the privilege of witnessing to their children, so now the children have the privilege of witnessing to their parents and to the in-laws. Healthy, good, respectful relationships are part and parcel of living out the gospel. Of having a healthy relationship and reputation with outsiders of the faith of the people of God. Now it is true with the in-laws as we see here between two men, grown men, adult men bringing affection and respect to one another. Now, I, this is a footnote. If, if indeed we as Christian men were better at expressing this gracious way of relationship, perhaps there wouldn't be so much confusion about affections changed between the genders and same genders. 
Just a thought. So, not only that, but our, our marital relationships. There, there is a, a way of testifying to and with one another. Now, in the New Testament, as the church was burgeoning and people were coming to faith, you'd end up with a, a mixed marriage, a mixed household. Not that it started that way. They both were unbelievers. But the gospel comes and one of them receives faith in Jesus Christ. And now it's a mixed marriage. Now it's a quote-unquote unequally yoked kind of scenario and situation. What do we do? And Peter gives some significant counsel and advice to the unbelieving partner in, in a marriage relationship. Paul would give some in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and so forth, but here Peter, specifically giving instruction for the wives, for the women, but it, it relates the other direction as well for men, husbands. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that is, they don't believe the word of Christ, the gospel, even if they don't obey the word, not believers, they might be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It doesn't mean that there aren't ever words exchanged. Or that the, the, the gospel isn't verbally pronounced somewhere in the person's life. But very often, it's, it's not you as the one closest, perhaps as a husband, perhaps as a wife, who will, will be able to speak that directly into the life of your partner with this conviction of the gospel. You live it in a respectful way. But maybe you would be able to be that mouthpiece of God to speak and testify of the grace of God. Now, we can't go into a relationship assuming that I can, in fact, win the other one over to Jesus. We don't go into a dating relationship with unbelievers, those outside of Christ. We, we don't enter into a marriage with unbelievers, those outside of Christ, intentionally, willfully. Accidents happen. Someone can be making a good profession at the moment and even look like there's genuine fruit, but then we realize it's a phony. It happens. We don't intentionally go looking for it, and Paul does give us that advice. He says, you don't know, wife, whether you'll save the husband, and you don't know, husband, whether you'll save the wife. It's not up to us. It is the power and work of the Holy Spirit to bring anyone to new life in Jesus Christ. All that said, our relationships of respect are ways through which the Holy Spirit does move in the life of others in our family and extended family. It's also our work relationships 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Let all of you who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Christians are to be the best employees, if we could 
across uh, the, the cultures and make this application. A bondservant is a bit of different kind of relationship, and yet it is a, a work relationship nonetheless. And the way that we respect and honor those over us is indeed a life-bearing testimony and witness to the name of God and to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And it is indeed our, our neighbors and our acquaintances. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time and let your speech, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Always appropriate, always fitting, always gracious, sweet. That, that speaks a lot to the kinds of outbursts of anger that we may express. It speaks a lot to the kinds of jokes that we may tell or even laugh at uncomfortably. Our relationships testify to God in the world around us. Now, it gets a little more challenging. The judgments of God testify to his glory. Verse 8. Verse 8. The judgments of God. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and all the hardships that came upon them. Okay, we can see the judgments, the, everything that God did to Pharaoh. The, the Lord's judgments upon the nations testify to his mercy and to his justice. God is still working among the nations. He is still using nations to pummel other nations for judgment. Yes, other nations arise, not in justice, but in justice, unjustly. Pummeling the unsuspected, the, the weaker nation. God will turn it around. He will in his time and in his way, judge the nations as he did Egypt. But it took 400 years in the life of Israel to see justice come about. Be patient. Be patient. Our leadership needs wisdom and courage, but more so they need to submit to the lordship of Christ himself that they might rule wisely and justly among the nations. Now, the Lord had indicated that, that the judgments against Egypt indeed were so that Israel and Egypt both would know that he is the Lord. There's, there's any number of passages that the Lord reminds, reminds us in reading him. This is so that you would know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. Let's just select two. Exodus 6. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people and will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. It's for us to know. The, the, the judgments are for us to know. And in Exodus 14, 
and verse 18. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. Whoa. The judgments of the Lord, his working among the nations, testify unto his sovereign rule. Now, not only this, but verse 8 goes on to talk about the hardships. Yes, the hardships testify unto the Lord. Moses told Jethro, his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Yeah, we win. We are the champions. And all the hardship that has come upon us in the way, along the way, in the wilderness. Yeah, the hardships too. Mud on our face. Yes, the hardships. I alluded to uh, a, a video, was it last week? And it's fantastic. This, this jump, this, this, this basketball shot from the top of a tower in Las Vegas and thousands of attempts it would seem and they finally made one. Yeah, we won and God's, God's, God still has a purpose for us. Probably, yeah. But like if they didn't make the shot, would they still have shown the video? I... Maybe they would. I'm just... Wish we could edit this off YouTube, but I'm just thinking out loud. I mean, what if they didn't make the shot after all that? Would they still go through the production process and put it out there for millions of viewers to see? We failed, but God still has a purpose for us. And we, we love the stories, and I have, I have dry eye syndrome uh, with, with thing, things like Facing the Giants film, for example, right? Yeah, I, my, my eyes get really dry and, and the body wants to moisten them to take care of the dryness. I, yes, I respond that way to them too. I, I like the victory. I like to win. I like the, the good people at the end getting the victory and winning. But it doesn't always turn out that way in your life, does it? It doesn't always work that way. It will ultimately and that's how we need to see these stories. This is about the ultimate end, the ultimate victory of Christ on the cross. It looks like failure, doesn't it? But yes, the resurrection, suffering, and then the glory to follow. We are still the people of the cross waiting for the return of Christ when we will know all of the resurrection power and glory. We're not there yet. And the hardships are part of the testimony. It gives us something to talk about with people. It gives us something to say, yeah, but God. I'm still laying in the hospital bed, but God. I'm still limping along, but God. You realize that Jacob wrestled with the Lord, and limped the rest of his life. It's a trophy mark of God's sanctifying work in his body, in his life. Paul's thorn in the flesh was, was something real in his body that was a sanctification work and mark, a testimony to the grace of God. Our weaknesses, our disappointments, even our failures, not the sin ones, but 
just not making it like the world always says. The world says you got to win. The survival of the fittest, whatever it takes to step and get ahead, step on them. That's not the Christian biblical worldview. Well, sorry. This is so on my heart. The hardships also testify to the Lord. Yes, it goes on. His deliverances, his saving acts. We're still in verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to, the, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come on them in the way. And thirdly, how the Lord did deliver them. He gave them meat. In the quail, he gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water from the rock. He brought them through the waters on dry land. He gave them a light by day and a uh, and cloud of pillar of cloud. He provided and delivered them all along the way. God's help testifies to his love and his power. Verses 9 to 12, we'll just highlight this and we'll come back to this next week. Worship also testifies unto the Lord. Our worship is witness. Our worship is gospel proclamation. Amalek responded with defiance. Jethro responded with belief and then to worship. We get a glimpse of the pattern of worship in verses 9 to 12. He rejoiced, he blessed, he confessed, he sacrificed, he fellowshiped. The law is going to unpack what this worship order looks like more fully. But witness, witness has the ultimate goal of worship. Those who are made in the image of God becoming worshipers of their maker and of their redeemer. Paul puts it this way for the New Testament church about worship. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 to 25. If an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he's called to an account by all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Is that not the longing of our heart as a church? That when we gather for worship, we would so be in the presence of and encountering God, that an outsider comes in among us and sees our relationship with the one true living God, and they fall on the face to worship, having come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God is really here. Well, how do we apply all this? Let's do some quick, quick summary of where we've been thus far. We are to pass on the faith to and through the next generations. 
We are to love our extended families, directing them to, to the Lord. The Lord's judgments on the nations testify of his mercy and of his justice. And the hard things in your life and my life testify to God's faithfulness and his sufficiency. He is enough. He is all that I need. God's help and deliverance, yes, they do testify of his love and his power. Especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And worship rehearses the narrative of God's revelation and redemption. Now understand this. You are a witness. You might be a good one. You might be a so-so one. But you are a witness by the way you conduct yourself and the words that you share. This is the promise, this Pentecost Sunday, Acts 1-8, 10 days earlier, 40 days at the ascension of Jesus Christ. He told his disciples, wait here in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Now, specifically for those 12 dudes on the mount. Well, 11 at that particular moment. They still need to get Matthias in there. It comes later in the chapter. But as the church grows and develops, we see the, that same spirit of Pentecost then working among the church. Even today, you are a witness. One who testifies of the victory news of Jesus. You don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be. I know we are. But we don't need to be afraid. We need not fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 God has given us not a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. That spirit resides in the believer. And so we ask for the enabling and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6, this warfare passage. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And Paul says, also for me, pray for me. Pray that I would have this same power and enablement of the Holy Spirit. He says that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul needed prayer asked for prayer we do too we are witnesses we need not be afraid but ask for the power of the holy spirit and be ready be prepared first peter three fifteen. in your hearts we can go ahead a couple slides not another one in your hearts honor christ the lord as holy always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. Always prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Your life is testifying of a way of hope and people see the way you conduct your life and they ask, what in the world is going on with you? You say, well, I know Jesus. He's conquered sin, he's conquered death, and I don't have to be afraid of anything anymore. 
There are different ways you can express yourself through art in its many forms, through storytelling, through hospitality, through reconciliation, through stewardship. All these can be aids in what we call evangelism, telling the good news. And that's all evangel is, the good news. You, good, E-U, like eulogy, same root word, a good word. And here we tell the good word about Jesus. What is the gospel? What is this good news? The gospel is the good news of God's saving love. Oh, back up. The good news is God's saving love in Jesus. Raising him from the dead. That, it's that simple. That's the good news. God saves through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, if you want to add a little more theological nuance, well, okay, we'll expand it. The gospel is God's saving love for his creation from sin and death in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is it. This is the gospel. Um, we often need to, to set a context, like, well, why do I need this good news? Because you're a sinner. Okay, but that's not the good news. That's the bad news, right? The fact that you're a sinner and need saved is not the good news. That's a precursor to the good. The good news is, God saves through the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. God saves through the resurrection of Jesus. God saves from sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel in a verse. Let me, let me share just... We're going to come back to this whole gospel thing because the, the elders have identified this as, a, as a, an area for us to concentrate. I selected three. Second Timothy 2.8, the gospel in a verse. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. Like, isn't that what I said? I got it from him. That's, that's the good news. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. John 3.16. Pastor George Harmon shared this one with us last fall. As a, the gospel in a verse. God loved the world in such a way. How? It's not quantitative as much as it's qualitative. God loved the world in such a way that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 4, 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. One verse in your mind, in your heart, ready and able to, to share with someone, with Jethro, the good news of Jesus Christ. Some of you are, are, are you know, well, we, there, there's more. Yeah, there is. So let's do the gospel in five verses. 
Two, two paragraphs. Titus 3. Oh, I did that one first? Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, I said, this is Paul's introduction, but this is the gospel that I preached to you. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared. He was seen. Like, that's the gospel right there. That's the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection, and there are witnesses to it. You go on in the chapter over 500 plus. Witnesses historical account documented witnesses of the resurrection titus 3 3 to 7 now some of you are like, we got to get some more theological terms in here okay titus 3 3 to 7 we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another okay we got the sin part we got the, the black velvet on which the diamond glistens. This is the total depravity of man. I know some of you Calvinists, you enjoy this part. We're sinners. Absolutely. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow! There's a gospel series. I mean, justification, regeneration, renewal, sin. Grace. Life eternal and inheritance. I, I share these with you, and these are obviously way beyond Exodus 18. This is, this is, this is beyond Moses' description. This is beyond Jethro's uh, confession. But we can't just stay in Exodus 18. We are New Testament people. We have the day of Pentecost already come. We have the abiding work of Jesus in us by the Holy Spirit. And you are witnesses of this. There's a verse. Just pick one verse and, and chew on it for your own gospel uh, presence and reminder. But then it, it's there to share with someone that's going to ask you for the reason of the hope that is in you. And, and friends, I, I, I believe that the more we chew on even just the one gospel verse, that hope is going to shine through. You won't be able to help it. The proverb says that wisdom changes a hard appearance. Wow. When we have gospel wisdom in us and through us, You'll look different. You won't, you won't notice it in the mirror. You're like, oh, there's Todd again. Yeah, he probably should shave. You won't notice degree by degree 
of glory. But someone out there is going to see something different in you because that word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. And some of you, some of you are, are better with memory and you'll be able to get this whole paragraph. And you'll, I don't know, maybe you'll, you'll decide, I'm going to go downtown, just stand on the street corner and, sit and recite this paragraph. I don't know why I said that. Nancy and I walked through uh, Chester, uh, England, through city center um, back in 2019. And um, we got caught in the middle and there were gospel witnesses on either side of city center. We call it downtown. They're on either side of city center and they're, they're street preachers and then, and then singing uh, gospel. Uh-huh, I wonder if that would work downtown Granville. Not too many people walking through, but we are witnesses. Let's ask him to show us how. So, Father in heaven, we do come. We're grateful for, indeed, all that you have done, all your, your ways and your works and your words of revelation and of redemption, and especially now in this age through Jesus Christ, the the ultimate fulfillment of why the nation of Israel existed in the first place was to get us Jesus. And you were faithful to them that Jesus would come. And you'll be faithful to us until Jesus comes again. 